looked and behold, the heavens were opened. A ninth season. <laughs> we believe in the Trinity. We believe in the five solas. We believe in the doctrines of grace. A lot of the time, people are asking the wrong questions. They're not asking the questions like, do I understand God's grace? Do I understand the cross? have our own ministry. It doesn't matter if you work as a CEO or you work at McDonald's or whatever you do, or whether you're quote unquote in ministry, you have a ministry. As we mature, we walk, we, we enjoy our relationship with God in as much as we see his majesty in the blessings that we have just by what Yeshua has done for us, not by what we have done to impress God and then get something from him. So faith, but, so, so salvation by faith. Absolutely. Salvation by faith. I keep zeroing in on these, you know, the big ideas, like what is biblical love? You know, what is, what is grace? Do I have an accurate understanding of God's grace? Our love for Yeshua, but his love, like through us is why we're doing what we're doing. And that's why it's called Messiah Matters. Wednesday, November 30th, 2022. This is Messiah Matters, number 410, getting ready for season 10. My name is Caleb Haig. Uh, boy, you know, sore back from shoveling a lot of snow this morning. <laughs> I don't know. I'll drop that off here. <laughs> nice. You'd think after almost 10 seasons that I would know have that I'm something? supposed to have something, something to say. Uh, that's become the that, thing. That's the thing. The thing is, Rob doesn't thing? know what. That's, that's the, the thing? thing. You should try to get a different thing. <laughs> <clears throat> you should try definitely try to get a different thing. <laughs> season <ain't> ten. <laughs> season ten. <laughs> turn over a new leaf. All right. <laughs> put it on my resolution list. <laughs> uh, so we will be starting uh, season ten in two weeks. Normally, it would be next week. However, I have to tell everyone. I'm you know I'm having a hard time. Getting back into the swing of things after uh, Denver, you know, we got back and then Thanksgiving happens and we essentially had, I think there was two, what we had two days off that week. And the reason why is because we got back on a Monday. So we, so Monday night we get back Tuesday, we had off because we'd been traveling for a week and you know, you got to have some time to recoup. 
So then I checked emails essentially on Wednesday and did a show with you. That was it. Then Thursday we had off and Friday it was like, uh, you know, just trying to plan something. And so, you know, like, how am I going to work this out? So I get into the office on Monday and it's like, all right, let's go. But the problem is, here's the problem with this. On Monday, I started Hebrew syntax at Southern. And yeah. so my entire, like every single waking second, and then my family, bless their heart. I love my family very much and I want to spend time with them. But my wife's like, can you please just like do your Hebrew out in your office and then come in here so that you're not trying to do two things at once? It's like, yes, absolutely. So now I'm like extending my work time in my, it's, it's a whole thing. It is a whole thing. Dude, at Southern, they told us, are you ready for this? They had to sign something. They had to sign something saying we'd put 15 to 20 hours in a week in Hebrew. It's no joke. So. Wow. Yeah. That's like three hours a day. almost. It's like a part-time job, man. Anyway, I'm, it, it's fine. I'm, I think I'm finally learning some Hebrew for the first time ever which is great. But at the same time, it's just like, man, I don't have time for all of this This is ridiculous. I got four kids, man. That's what I'm trying to say. All right. So what you're also trying to say is for you who are starting to learn Hebrew, learn it the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Put your 15 to 20 hours in the first time. So you don't have to do it over and over and over again. Yeah, it's very good. Okay. Um, Two, five, three. Uh, 253 It's 253-465-3205. It's been a little while since we've heard the jingle. Let's hear the jingle. Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253-465-3205. All right. Uh, you can also shoot us an email. Chegatorresource.com. It's C-H-E-G-G at Torresource.com. We check all of our phone messages. We read all of our emails. Uh, and then, of course, Tor Resource is the place to find all sorts of free stuff. Uh, and you can also pay for stuff, too. By the way, I don't think we plug this enough. And I think we should plug this. Uh, for those who don't know, Tor Resource has a deal where you can, uh, for $100 a year, a year, so less than, what is that? It's less than $10 a, less than $10 a month. Anyway, you ha- can get access to our library, which is all of our digital products, all audio, all video, and all PDF files. And you can download all of it if you have a library membership. Uh, $100 a month, you can find that in, other mater- in the other materials section on our website. So, you know, if you're thinking of like, man, there's two or three books I'd really like to get, just buy the library membership and then download them. It's, I mean, everyone should do, everyone should have a, a library membership, in my opinion. Anyway, okay, so go buy one. But if you don't want to buy a library membership, do us a favor, just subscribe to this YouTube channel. It helps us. I know it sounds weird, but it does. And uh, we're getting close, man. We're getting close. I think in season 10, we'll hit 10,000 subscribers. Nice. 10,000 in 10. 10,000 in season 10. Now I'm not sure. Does does uh, does YouTube give a little plaque for 10,000 subscribers? Maybe they do. I don't know. We'll find out. If so, <laughs> we'll no reveal idea. it on air. All right, let's jump into it. Well, first of all, I, I do want to also say uh, hello to everyone in the chat room. We got a decent showing in the chat room today. Everybody looks excited to be here, and uh, 
yeah, everybody's doing their, their shout outs. So hello from Texas. Hello from Idaho. Uh, I think we got Oklahoma in there. Yeah. Anyway. Nice. All right. Okay. Let's jump in. Here's what we got. It's been a while since we've uh, addressed different things. Now, uh, Rob is not ready for this one. This one came in this morning. And talk about it. I, though. Lo- I love not being ready. <laughs> let's let's hear it. It's is is that your other thing? What's my is other that, thing? That's your other thing is not being ready. Okay. Ah, uh, here we go. Timothy writes in. He says this. He says, "My question to you is in First Corinthians eleven two and Second Thessalonians two fifteen. Is Paul teaching?" that we should be observing Jewish tradition. If Paul is saying that his Gentile churches are supposed to follow Jewish tradition, are we as well? Let's read those passages. I got them pulled up what here. What are First they again? First Corinthians 11, 2. I give you the other one, too. The yeah, other one is Second Thessalonians 2, 15. Oh, because oh, it has the word paradosis. Yeah, that's why. So 1 Corinthians 11, 2, uh, we'll start out with that. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15 says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Um, so uh, I think the question is obvious. Does the uh, Does the scriptures, the apostolic scriptures uh, teach believers that they should be following Jewish tradition. Now, I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess that uh, Timothy is asking when he says Jewish tradition, I'm going to guess that he's referring to the Mishnah and the Talmud, which do not come along until a good 500 years, uh, 500 years after Christ, right? So clearly Christ cannot be talking about the Mishnah or the Talmud. And the reason why is because they're not around in the first century. So uh, some might argue, okay, but there were, there were Jewish traditions that were going along, going around, that become the mission in the Talmud later. That's our, how much of that is true is arguable. arguable. Uh, the question that would have to be raised if, now I'm not conceding that he's talking about Jewish tradition. In fact, I don't think he is. But if Paul is referring to Jewish tradition, which Jewish tradition is he talking about? Which one are you going to choose? to follow. Is he talking about the Pharisaic uh, tradition? Is he talking about the Sadducean tradition? Is he talking about the Qumran tradition, the Sakari tradition? I mean, the, the list could go on. We're, we're not talking about Judaism. We're talking about Judaisms. And each one of them had different traditions. You know, even Paul speaks against Jewish, some Jewish tradition, right? In, in Colossians two, he says that it's the teaching of men and, and, uh, you know, vain, philosophies, I think he says, Uh right? So clearly he's not talking about all Judaisms. And I think that we get into some real murky water, especially in like the Messianic movement. There's this idea that Jewish tradition is monolithic in the first century. In other words, that there's like one Jewish tradition, everybody, everybody kind of adheres to it. Um, This is not the case. This is, this is certainly not the case. There's lots of different tradition. The fact that the fact that the uh, that the Pharisees are are following Christ around and telling him that he's doing stuff wrong, you know, the fact that uh, that Yeshua asks, "Do you believe that that John the Baptist was a true prophet?" What do they have to say? You know, there's there's multiple traditions. So that's right. where I that's where I'm going to start. Rob, take it over. 
Well, I think the word, the, this word paradosis, obviously, like you pointed out, it's used um, and it, it, it's got a wide semantic range, right? It's got positive usage, negative usage, um, but it also doesn't have to necessarily mean practice. It's not like, like, for example, in Mark 7 or Matthew 15, it has to do with a ritual washing of hands that is supposed to eliminate some sort of impurity Koinos impurity that was uh, contracted while in the marketplace or something. Now you're going to come into a house, you're going to come into a holy meal. You have to like somehow transition and remove that so that you can be acceptable in the meal. And you, and then and then you have that tradition start. So there's a right and then a rationale behind the right and then a judgmental attitude for people who aren't on board with this new commandment of men. And that's why Yeshua rose him for that. But a tradition can also be um, uh, something about um, the message of the gospel itself. Right. It's just the tradition. It, it, the word paradosis just means a handing over, a handing so it down. Be, so it could be the scriptures themselves. Exactly. So for example, if we look at, uh, let me pull it up, but I think it's even in, is it First Corinthians um, 15? Let me just check here. Yeah, it, and it's it's the the same language. Now he doesn't use the noun, but in first same letter, so First Corinthians fifteen. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received. So it's the language of receiving, which in which also you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast. Same concept, holding fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you that word. That's paradosis in a verbal form, though to hand over to you um, as the first importance, what I also received, right? So it's the language of transmitting and receiving uh, that Christ died for our sins, according to scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day, according to the scriptures, etc., etc. So uh, when Paul talks about a paradosis, it's, we have to remember that term sometimes does mean to, oh, we fast twice a week. Right. You know, on Mondays and Thursdays. And that's a, that's the paradosis in our sect, for example. And if you're one of us, you do it. If you're in part of Caleb's sect, you have to sign that says you're going to you're going to study Hebrew 15 hours a week. That's a that's a paradosis <laughs> that he signed that's up the, for. That's the but, Southern Baptist paradosis. Exactly. So but but it so it can mean that, but it doesn't have to. It, it clearly from the same epistle, first Corinthians, holding fast to the traditions you got to remember also, right? Because this is what, mid fifty, mid first century, Paul's writing these letters, 40s and 50s. The Gospels are not like fully written yet, right? There's no, it's not like you go down to a bookstore and have the Gospel of Matthew, right? Or the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of John. So Paul's letters are really among the earliest, what we call Christian documents, you know, what, that, are, that are going out there. Um, and so... I think that whatever it whatever it means, we're not missing out on anything because we have the fullness of the apostolic writings now, which which capture all the paradosis concerning Yeshua that we right. need to know exactly. in God's wisdom. So, and so yeah, the, the idea of I, I agree with you, Caleb. I think you were getting at that. There's no reason to sneak the word Jewish in here to say Jewish. You know, when I hand over the I handed down to you these Jewish traditions. That's that is trying to add a skew 
you know what I mean? Or a bias that, that is really inappropriate to just a plain reading of the text. Okay. So I do really want to, uh, I want to be careful because I know that there are some people who are very, very, um, adamant about this. Maybe that's the wrong word. Anyway, uh, nonetheless, uh, Scott and I are having a bit of a conversation in the uh, in the chat room. So uh, he's talking about various traditions that the uh, that the uh, apostolic scriptures, also known as the New Testament, might uh, might put forward. Um, but so I, th- I think that we need to be real careful about a couple of things here. First of all, if it's in the apostolic scriptures, if it's in the if it's in the uh, New Testament. It's not a tradition. If it's a commandment, it's a commandment of God. So it falls under the commandments of God. It's not a tradition that we should keep, but it's tradition so we can nudge here or there. And so if that's the case, then when we come into things that Paul commands, then we need to treat them as commanded of God, right? Because the, the, the letters that Paul has written are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and not just Paul, right? So when we read John, when we read Mark, when we, you know, Luke, when these things are given commands, uh, it, it is as good as being given on Sinai, right? Because it's of the Holy Spirit. That's my opinion on this. And then we'll get into some script, uh, what is scripture in a few minutes here. But <clears throat> we see things like, uh, women being silent in the congregation would be one or head coverings were a Jewish tradition that wasn't explicit in the Torah. Now I said, uh, and, and then Scott says, uh, I think my wife wears a head covering, so I'm pro head coverings. I think it is a good tradition. And I said, but are you saying Paul was telling people to wear head coverings? He said, yeah, when women are praying or prophesying. So, um, I would disagree with women being silent in the congregation as well. Clearly women are not supposed to be silent all the time in the congregation. And the reason why is because we see that Paul says when a woman prophesies, so, so women are clearly speaking in, in, in the congregation. So there is a modifier to being silent in the congregation. I think that that specific text talks about women att- attempting to uh, have authority uh, in scripture. In other yeah, words, there's a verb to, there to, uh, that it occurs only there in the Bible, but it, it is, yeah, it's, it's, and, and this was good. This touches on some of the ETS papers that, that uh, Tim and I went to um, that touch on the first Corinthians passages that are, that are about this. And the, the concept is like now, if you know, people go to a church now and you know, how often is the by is the shepherd or the shepherds telling the people, this is what the Bible means, right? That you go and you uh, learn what scripture is because there's an authoritative structure, authoritative person that's communicating with that authority and you go and, and you go and learn so that the church government is not separate from how you learn the word of God. But that's kind of not really the case anymore. A lot of time, you know, the pastor will teach, you know, here's three different ways of looking at something. And I don't know which way it is where, you know, right. it's, it's not that idea of, of authority and instruction don't go in hand hand in hand, but back in the first century, discipleship and instruction and community governance are all right. They're all one and the same thing, and and so that word to have authority over is is like putting a woman in a in that position, 
where she's telling somebody what the word of God means and being a person who is discipling and um, uh, basically that's, I think I've kind of basically said it. I don't need to keep talking. So um, <laughs> hang on just a sec. There, but there, there's another aspect with the, that that's what my, that's where my brain went. The, the other aspect was in first Corinthians, Paul, Paul quotes often the Corinthian beliefs and they call it, you know, in, in new Testament studies, they call it the slogans. So the question is, so there's times in uh, first Corinthians where Paul repeats something like, um, Oh boy, I, I wasn't ready for this. So I don't have any off the top of my head, but there are places in Paul where he's, it's like, he's having a conversation. He's, he's, he's reflecting both sides of the conversation. And then sometimes he says something and he's quoting their, their position on something. And then he responds. And often they call it these slogans when he, he quotes them, but it's easy for us readers today to think, Oh, that this is Paul's slogan. Oh, Paul's advocating this position when in fact, no, he's demonstrating to the Corinthians that he understands their their way of looking at things and how they understand it. And then he's going to communicate that to them. And then he's going to give his response. And where scholars are not all on the same page is how do we, what are the clues in the Greek text to clearly indicate when Paul is quoting them versus when he's giving his response to their teaching. And that's where scholars aren't all on the same page, but Chapter 11 is one of those places um, and, and elsewhere in uh, Corinthians. Yeah. So there, <clears throat> Scott is of the opinion uh, in the chat room that, uh, that a woman's only allowed to prophesy and pray at home, not in the congregation. I, I, you can believe that. I disagree with you on that. I don't think that that's what the text says at all. Um, and so <clears throat> I think that women are allowed to pray and prophesy in the congregation and speak in the congregation. They're just not allowed to teach with authority in the congregation. Also, What's the verse uh, about the authority, real quick? Um, I think he's referring to 1 Corinthians 14. Um, let's see. <clears throat> women Arguable. keep silent, right? Uh, the First Corinthians eleven is is about prophesying in the congregation. First um, Corinthians fourteen thirty four is the keep silent in the keep silent in the congregation. But then also in um, eleven, First Corinthians eleven, uh, there's all this talk about head coverings. I already linked in the chat room a. Um, a article that my father has written on that. It seems pretty apparent in my opinion from the Greek that it's talking about hair and not about head coverings. And uh, the reason why is because he specifically refers to hair uh, several times coming down. And the, the, uh, the term that is, uh, is used for a head covering that people think is referring to a head covering just says something coming down from the head. So um, that would be... This is where people believe that head coverings are commanded. I don't believe it's talking about head coverings. Um, and so I, I know that that's a, there's various opinions uh, on that. And uh, my father, Tim Haig, uh, writes about that in that article and uh, shows why he believes that it's not talking about head coverings. Anyway, um, so uh, yeah, 1433, 1433. Four is the uh, keeping silence, and then eleven is when it talks about women prophesying, um, and 
I, I don't, I personally don't think there's a way that you can get away from this, uh, this talking about, uh, being in the congregation. So anyway, um, just trying to, uh, sift through all of the, uh, all of the comments as well. Okay. So, uh, so, uh, yeah, and Scott responds with, if they desire to learn anything, let them uh, ask their own husbands at home for it is improper for a woman to speak in, in the ecclesia. Yeah, once again, this is in, I, I think you're, Scott, no offense, brother, but I think that you are completely missing the point of, of what Paul is saying. He's talking about them, uh, about a woman attempting to usurp, usurp authority over men from the scriptures within the, within, uh, the congregation in the, uh, and it's clear that he's talking about, uh, that he's talking about an authority structure. He is not talking about women not being able to talk in the congregation. And I think this, I think this is made clear from other passages where women are clearly speaking in the congregation. I mean, we can agree to disagree on this one, but um, I, I think I think you've missed it. I think you've got it wrong. Okay, let's move on. Uh, we are going to go to Andrew. Andrew says, just a quick question. Since you don't believe that the Septuagint is inspired, okay, now, uh, the, Andrew's not the only person who wrote a message like this. So I just pulled Andrew's comment because it was the easiest to follow along with. Just a quick question. So since you don't believe that the Septuagint is inspired, how do you reconcile when Jesus quotes it in Mark 7, 6 through 7? And he refer, he puts in Isaiah 29, 13. Well, first of all, let's stop right there. The Apostolic Scriptures of the New, New Testament quotes from the Septuagint. I believe it is 58% of the time that it quotes the Scriptures. So it's not just when Yeshua quotes in Mark 7, 6 through 7. Just throwing that out there. Would you affirm that at least this particular verse is inspired since Jesus is quoting it? Of course, I would uh, say that the verse itself, uh, Isaiah 29, 13, is inspired. I think that the, this shows that people have missed, missed, the, uh, missed what we have said. Anyway, uh, I have heard arguments for the Luke 4 passage simply being that Jesus was handed the Greek scroll, but how do you reconcile when Jesus quotes it from memory in the version available in the Septuagint? Yeah, I think that the, uh, the disciples and Yeshua quote from the Septuagint often. Um, so I, I don't think people have quite understood. Clearly, the Orthodox tradition, so I take the Orthodox position on the inspired text of Scripture. And the, the Orthodox, the Christian Orthodox belief of inspired text. Now, this, I'm not making this up. This is, this is what Orthodoxy has said for quite some time. Basically, the original autographs of the authors are inspired. That means that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, uh, pushed those people and inspired those people to sit down and write out the, the text. It is that text, which we no longer have, that is inspired. Any copy is not inspired. Does it contain inspired text? The answer is yes. It contains inspired text, but is the copy itself inspired? And the answer is no. Why? Well, this is a very important, a very important thing to understand within uh, textual criticism, because if it's inspired, then there can be no mistakes. If every 
copy is inspired from the Holy Spirit, then there should be no variance whatsoever because the Holy Spirit is the one who's inspiring it. However, that's not the case. We have thousands of variants, which means that human authors, human people have accidentally done something. That's not inspired. That's a mistake. The Holy Spirit does not make mistakes. Okay. So then the, now let's go to translations. The best way to, to uh, show this would be, is the King James Version inspired? Do we believe that the King James Version is an inspired text? And except for KJV onlyists, we're going to say, no, of course it's not an inspired text. There was all sorts of problems with the KJV. It's not an inspired text. Well, then is any translation inspired text? The answer is, once again, no, it is not an inspired text. It contains inspired scripture, but it is not an inspired text. The you know, inspired I have to, I, I'm sorry. I have to ask a footnote question. Sure. Because I think you've been maybe in the history of more, interacted more with KJV inspired uh, people. Um, what, what do they say about the Apocrypha? Because there's a the King James version has the apocryphal as well. Do they maintain that that too is inspired, or do they say no? We have to subtract the Catholic apocrypha, and then that the remainder King James is inspired. Sorry, to, I don't mean to derail. No, no, no. I, it's, I, I, I think that I think that people go both both ways, but I think that most KJV onlyists say no. It's not part of the inspired text. Okay, so. So the Holy Spirit stopped working through those men just during the time they were working on the Apocrypha, but then re-engaged with them when they were back on. Okay. Okay. I mean, I guess that's that, oh, there's, that logic that logically fits that view. Uh, here, the, here's the other problem is that there are multiple mistakes in the original K KJV printing. So which one? Well, you, I know, you know, I know, other other than the adultery Bible, right? The other than that, that. was a, that wasn't a first printing. So oh, the question, I mean, when you get into KJV only, then you have to ask, well, which printing was inspired? Was the very first printing inspired? Was it what has become gotcha. to be? Was it? Well, you, it's what, similar to the Book of Mormon, right? In a way of like you take a printing, a printed product, and then they're like, well, we're going to update it. Well, wait a minute, you know. You know, you know, well, we're going to update, you know, all these changes that we know were made in the Book of Mormon. Okay. That, now, okay. So thank you for indulging me on that. that that's well, a, that's a, what, what we have is the standard KJV is not what was originally uh, printed, right? Printed. Adjusted. Yeah. Yeah. They adjusted it at what, 20 years later or something like that. So, I mean, then the question becomes which one is inspired or not. So all of this is actually, then the, uh, another question that could come from this is now let's take it out of, out of English is the standard Mandarin Chinese Bible also inspired. The, the point is, is no, these are not inspired texts. Right. What was inspired was the original autograph in the original language. And, and this is one of the reasons that we have a, uh, a pretty large issue with, with uh, Hebrew primacy, right? Is because uh, we don't believe that the, that the uh, apostolic scriptures were originally written in Hebrew. So that would be a translation. Now, this actually becomes important when, we, when we're looking at original languages. And so 
I don't want to yeah. get into that uh, yeah. that discussion now. But ultimately, the point is the Septuagint is a translation of Hebrew. It is not. We should be cl- I want to just add a footnote on that. There is no when we say Septuagint. If if you're a person who's you read Greek and you're immersed in the Greek Bible in the Old Testament, New Testament. Your use of the word Septuagint is very different than people who don't know Greek and just think of Septuagint as like a uh, because if if you look, there is no quote Septuagint. All we have is different manuscripts from different times with different adjustments. Like one of the uh, one of the manuscripts I've been studying is a Greek Deuteronomy that's like from the first century, and it's it it's very different than the standard Septuagint. Deuteronomy. And there are places where they, they note that it's already making adjustments back to what we think of as the Hebrew or the Masoretic text. There's places where, for example, the Kyrios, they don't use Kyrios, they actually write yod heh vav And how to spell Moses, the name Moses, is closer to the vowel pointing than than is in the standard spelling of Moses. So there's little adjustments like this, and this is already in the first century BC. So there's no stable text called the Septuagint. There's versions that are floating around. But even, you know, in, in Bible studies that I do, you know, we, we often use the NASB as like our standard, but there's times where I really like the NASB, and then there's times where I have to stop and say, okay, I have to talk about, you know, I'm really disappointed with the NASB on this verse, and here's why. And then I look at the Hebrew or the Greek and I explain why I think uh, that there's a, a, a better way to represent the original language here than what the NASB chose. So even though I can say, yeah, I'm a fan of the NASB, that doesn't mean I endorse every single verse or every single passage that's in the NASB. So it's not like, well, I found, you know, the, the Yeshua's words in Mark and, and the Septuagint version are almost identical Therefore, Yeshua must carry around a a Septuagint Bible with him that he always is quoting from as if it's authoritative. And that's the wrong picture. We don't want to have Uh, that picture. These scriptures were heard. They were sung. They were recited. They were in the air. When Yeshua cites a scripture to somebody, chances are they probably already have heard it before. It's It's not like Yeshua or the disciples cite scripture to another Jew and they're like, oh, that's in there? Like, that's in there? Why? Well, Where? Hey, hey, Is that on, really pull, in the Bible? Let's pull back That's for just a second, happening. though. Let's pull it's back in for the just air. a second. Let's pull back for just a second because I, I do want to make this uh, crystal clear. When I say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life, am I speaking scripture? Yes. Yes, I am. Is it but I couldn't in the, tell you what translation you're using. Right. Is it I, in the I, is it hang on, is it in the original language? The answer is no. Is no. it in spot is it is what I'm saying inspired? In other words, is the Holy Spirit inspiring me to speak the scripture? The answer is no. I can recite is holy it, is scripture. It true? Yes, it's true. It's true. And saying. I can recite holy scripture. Is the scripture that I'm reciting inspired? It contains inspired text, even though it's not in, in the uh, in the original language. But is it inspired? No, what I'm saying is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, so there is a difference there. And this is what I'm trying to convey to you. Do I believe that the Septuagint is inspired? The answer is no. The the uh, Septuagint is not inspired. Does it contain inspired text? Yes. So when Yeshua quotes from the Septuagint, is he reciting inspired text? Yes. Now we could get into the question of, is everything that, that since God 
is since Yeshua is God, is everything that he says inspired? And the answer would be yes. <laughs> so, but once again, we're talking about a difference between inspired scripture and, and like the original autographs of scripture, which the Holy Spirit inspired and quoting something that is inspired text. What, when I quote it, I'm not, I am not being inspired by the Holy Spirit to utter, you know, in the inspired word of God right now. What's happening is I am reciting something that contains inspired text. So, um, and, anyway. and we know, we know in many other avenues, there's allusion and then there's other blank, blatant quotes where, where, and this is one thing I like about Tim Haig's commentaries, whether it's his work on Romans or Galatians, where, where you encounter a, or even at the gospel of Matthew, he's got a commentary wherever there's a citation from the Tanakh. Tim, usually his practice is to provide it in multiple columns and you see the different text readings. And he makes that appointed part of the discussion is like, okay, wow. Notice here that Paul is, he's clearly citing Exodus, but he's clearly not citing anything that we have in the Greek Septuagint. So where did Paul get this way that, that, and, and, and it's actually really tracks really close to the Greek or, or the Greek tracks really close to the Hebrew. Right. Um, more so than the, what we have in the Septuagint versions. So it's a it, scripture was in the air and we don't want to think of it as the, just like there's not a monolithic Judaism, there's not a monolithic Septuagint. Right. Yeah. All right. I hope that that clears it up. Um, it might not. I found that other fun. real quick back to the other question about first Corinthians 14. Yeah. The, the verse I was looking at was it's, it's from first Timothy two and my brain, I was thinking it was from that Corinthians passage, but it, it's similar. He says a woman must quietly receive instruction. Right. And then it says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Right. And I take that to mean, um, that, that those are meant to the same thing, like to teach and then to have authority over. That's the word. When I, when I said something about a word occurring only once, it's, it's that verb right there. Um, uh, authenteo. And it, in, in the BDAG, it says to assume a stance of independent authority, to give orders to, to dictate to. So I think even though that's not part of the first Corinthians passage, it is another sounding that we can take from Paul's thought about this issue. And um, I think it's totally fair to read those together and to try to, when we're reflecting on what, what Paul's getting at. Yeah. That's all. That's all. Let's oops. Sorry. We went black there for a second. Okay. Um, I want to continue the conversation about authority. Christine writes in, she says, please continue this conversation. Our authority is the word made flesh. What does that mean? When, when she says our authority is the word made flesh. Okay. I believe that our authority is Yeshua for sure. But how do we know what, what authority he is given and what he's saying? And, and I think that Christine would agree here that, uh, our authority is the word of God, right? 
Mm-hmm. So God is our authority. He lets us know what he, what his will is, what his nature is, what his, who he is and how we are to live through the word of God. So our authority is the scriptures, right? Okay. Reformation is happening within the body today as it was in Luther's year, was within Luther years ago. So what does it look like to come under authority? This goes back to our conversation about um, coming under authority within uh, uh, the structure of the ecclesia, the, the congr- a congregation. Jesus did not go under the authority of religious leaders. <clears throat> I I understand Wait, what he, you are. They say he I, didn't go against them. No, she she says Jesus did not go under the authority of religious leaders. Oh, I I, I okay. So I understand what Christine's saying, but I am going to push against that in just a second. Hang on. Uh, that we're adding to or subtracting from the word, did Elijah and the prophets go under authority or were they called by obedience to him to have to walk counterculturally? Okay, I agree with Christine that we should certainly walk counterculturally. Our uh, culture is quite screwed up these days. There's no doubt about that. However, I think that it is important for us to try to find Bible-believing congregations. And God clearly sets up in his scriptures authority structures within the body of Christ. Okay, so there are shepherds and there are elders and deacons, and we are to submit to that those authorities. That's the structure that God has put up. I'm not saying that. God says that. Right? Within the Tanakh, we see that the priests have authority. We see that the judges have authority. Parents have authority. And so uh, the question is, is what do you mean by religious religious authority? Was Yeshua under the authority of his parents as a child? Absolutely. Yes, he was. So was, and did Yeshua adhere to the, Yeshua doesn't walk into the Holy of Holies and sit down on the ark and say, boom, done. Here I am. He could have, but he didn't. Instead, he, he maintains the authority structure that God has put forward within the temple. Right? Yeah, and, and back to the point of the prophets, they never tried to make themselves king or anything, right? The prophets were never thought that they were the kings of Israel or Judah, right? They might sometimes have a word against the king, you know, when the king was disobedient, but there never was an instance of a claim of illegitimacy of the king, right? The prophets always affirmed, yes, you are the king and you are in deep doo-doo, <laughs> no, I, no, <laughs> right? I, I agree. Now, I agree. Now, unashamed of Jesus makes a great point. And, and, and I agree with this statement. Jesus is God. Why would he put himself, uh, go under the authority of religious leaders? So I agree. I don't think that he walks into the synagogue and say, and perhaps this is one of the reasons that he continues to move, right? Is that he's not part of a, a community where he has to put himself under because he is in fact God. He is not going to come under the, uh, the uh, spiritual authority of someone else. Agreed. But clearly within scripture, we are given the uh, authority structure that we must be under. He has appointed spiritual leaders for us. He has appointed elders and deacons, right? He has appointed priests and these things. Okay. So granted, now there's all sorts of conversations that could come from this in terms of, well, there's no temple. So are we still under the uh, priesthood? I would say that the answer is no, not currently, so on and so forth. But with that said, uh, clearly we are under spiritual authority. Every human is sinful except for our Lord and Savior, right? Every human. So it doesn't matter what person you're going to place yourself under in terms of the authority that that the Lord has set up in the apostolic scriptures. 
there's going to be missteps because they're human. So they're, you're going to have, um, you're going to, you're going to have, uh, issues there no matter what. And actually Scott in the chat room, he says, Jesus went under authority to be an example for us. And this is actually, this is a great point because Scott's right. Yeshua goes under the authority of the, uh, of at least someone to be crucified, right? Did he have to do that? To Pilate. He says you wouldn't have this, uh, authority unless it was given to you from above. Yeah, exactly. But, there, but there's times where he, you know, they say, Lois, where do you get your authority? Right, where do you get your authority? And he says, well, I'll tell you what, let me ask you a question first. John the Baptist, was his authority from heaven or from men? Right. To answer me that, and then I'll tell you where I get my authority. And they're they're like, oh, wait, wait, we can't, we don't know. Because if we say this, well, that, and if we say this, eh. and he exposes their their corruption. He exposes that they're in for their own self-interest and their own self-preservation rather than for God's truth. So he's like, well, then I'm not going to answer you. <laughs> you know, if you're not going to answer me, I'm not going to answer you. So Lois got me. She says the ark wasn't in the temple. Just saying, uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The ark wasn't in the temple. So the, here's the question then could, could Yeshua have walked into the temple with the ark? Could he have grabbed two of it or four of his disciples said, Hey, here's the ark, go grab it and bring it into the temple. I'm going to sit down in the Holy Holies. Yeah, he could have. Um, but the point is, is he didn't. So I, I think what I, here's what I, let's just go to what I'm hearing here from Christine. What I hear from Christine is this, and I could be wrong on this, but what I hear is we shouldn't place ourselves under the authority structures of people within the church because they are wrong on so many issues. Okay, fair enough. If you think that, then you definitely should not be in a church. You should find a group of believers where you can, uh, where you could fellowship and where you can place yourself under the authority of someone. With that said, uh, no matter what you find, whether it's a Messianic congregation, whether it's a Hebrew Roots congregation, a Christian church, uh, a Jewish synagogue, no matter what, you're going to have theological errors. They are human. They are going to be yeah. wrong. Well, and we live in a time because we have the internet, like back in the 2000 years ago, if I would have to go hang out with somebody who was a teacher to like learn anything, right? I couldn't listen to the radio. I'm not going to have access to, right? If I want to have a book, I have to pay a scribe to copy it for me. And then I have to find a, a scribe who's worthwhile, who's reliable. And then which book am I going to have him copy for me, right? I mean, there's, there's all sorts of problems. So I have to physically go live somewhere where I can hang out and be close to somebody. And it might be the wrong teacher, right? So, but in our day and age, the problem set has, the tables have really turned. And now you can get on Rabbi Google. And now we have every single person has their own little theology library in their brain of what they think is right and what they think is wrong, including criticisms of other people. And, you know, and, and it's, and people get real zealous for stuff they don't understand. I've seen it time and time and time again. And they're not interested in um, learning. They, they, don't, they don't have humility, right? You have, to, you have to have humility in order to learn. Right? Um, you, you, have to, you have to have humility. And, and that means willingness to say, you know what, I don't know. I don't you've know. Brought a, you, you've brought up a really a sensitive issue for me. You know, when I was pastoring, 
And I understand it's hard to place yourself under the authority of someone, especially in our, with what you're saying, especially in our day and age where people have the internet and they're, and they're constantly able to go look up what, whatever they want. What this, what this person said about this thing. We had, uh, you know, our, our congregation was very small. We had 30, 35 people and, uh, there was numerous people, numerous people who every single week would come in and say, oh, you know, I, I was, uh, looking at this person or I, you know, I believe this because of this person. And I would say, this isn't what the scriptures teach. What you're listening to is are people who deny the deity of Christ or what you're listening to are people who deny a 66 book canon or I mean, the list would go on and on and on. And I would say things like you should stop listening to this person for a while until you have a better handle on the scriptures. And then you can go listen to, you know, then you can go test, but you need to understand the scripture every single week. The same people would come back. Same people would say, oh, well, you know, but I was listening to this person again. And, and eventually we just finally said, these people are not ready to be under anybody's, they don't want to be under anybody's authority. What they want is a Bible study. They don't want any authority structure. Well, they don't even want a Bible study. They want, they want a forum to spew crazy things. And, and, and no, I've, you know, you and I both probably done tons and tons of Bible studies or where we're teaching and there's no benefit. The flock does not benefit from poison. The flock does not benefit from nonsense or silliness or foolishness. And sadly, and, and you don't have to go into the messianic realm to, to find silliness and foolishness, obviously. Um, but, uh, so, but that's why James says, you know, if, if you're, if you're a teacher, like there's a lot required of you. And if you make it an issue like the reformers did, look, then at what are the basic, what are some basic uh, skills? What are some basic competencies? Well, the reformers say non-negotiably original languages. Like right. it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that if you know the original languages, you've arrived and you're a teacher. It just means that that is one thing. It's one level of vetting. And um, but that's hard work. That's why you get the, you know. Gematria people and the Hebrew word picture people and the the little uh, pictograph interpretations. And then you have whole areas of uh, in the Messianic world or Hebrew roots world where people thrive as teachers of nonsense and they thrive. So maybe we should talk about this for just a second in terms of like Bible study. You know, I think that there is a place for, for little Bible studies. And what those are, are when you have a congregation that you're going to. And then you want to get together with a couple of brothers and, and study the word during the week. And what do you do? If something doesn't sit right, where do, where do you go? You go to your pastor, you go to the leader of your congregation, you say, Hey, look at this. This is what was said in my Bible study. How should I, how should I address this? Or what do you think of this? Instead, what people think are Bible studies is when they have no community. And instead they get together with some families every single time. That every single time that this has happened, I, I get, you know, and, and uh, I, I'm contacted by people in these quote unquote Bible studies. It, I mean, it is the same exact conversation every time. We have, you know, we have four or five families that get together every Shabbat. And it's just a Bible study. And I know, I know what's coming next. It's just a Bible study. But we've had some visitors come and they're, they're coming in saying that, you know, they're denying the deity of Christ. Or, you know, and they're really stirring up some trouble. They're, they're, you know, and we don't or know they what they say. What, we need to, we need to keep the calendar differently or that right. the Sabbath is only 
during the daylight hours or right. Yeah. And, and we don't know what to do with this. What, you know, what should we tell them? And every time it's the same kind of conversation. Well, who's, who, who's the authority in the, in the congregation? Oh, it's not a congregation. It's just a Bible study. We don't really have an authority structure. Well, then what are you doing? Yeah. You have no defense against that then except for to try to argue with the, pe the people. What you need to do is set up authority and have a Bible study during the week with a couple of people or whatnot. You need a congregation on Shabbat where, or on, you know, on the weekend where you have an authority structure where if with somebody comes in and is saying, oh, you know, I, I deny the deity of Christ and this is why, uh, the authority structure says, hey, sit down and shut up. That's what the shepherds do. They keep the well, wolves that, now out. Now we're back to that that authenteo, that verb, where Paul says a woman <laughs> can't do that in the ecclesia. That's not her role. Right. That the men do have a role to tell people to shut up, and and it seems like it seems like with the Corinthians specifically, the local Corinthian culture had a high a high placement of female authority in the lar in the not in the ecclesia necessarily but in the larger culture in the temples and everything and so there was this pre uh presumption of women it seems coming into the Corinthian ecclesia and they were bringing this baggage of oh this of this picture of womanhood from that pagan culture and trying to get traction in in an authoritative place inside the Corinthian Ecclesia. And Paul's like, no, go read Genesis. Right. I mean, the, the idea is you need to, there's a, just like there's a new way of being a man, you know, when you're at, when you come from paganism and you learn, you, you come, you, uh, by God's grace, you repent and you come to the God of Israel. You have to learn what it means to be a man a different way. You can't bring your image of what manhood is from paganism and just, paste new stickers on the out uh, on it, right? You got a fundamental change. Well, the same thing for women. You and that new life is is obviously moved by the spirit in, in our heart. God writes his word on our heart, male and female alike, and we learn to walk in his ways according to his revealed word. But we have to have a canon of scripture. We have to have a, you know teachers who know what they're talking about. Right. right, you know, shepherd, good shepherds, and uh, and uh, humility, and and a recognition that we're that there's stuff in the world. There's bad habits. There's wrong ways of looking at things that have to right. be checked. That every thought has to be taken captive to Messiah. Yeah, I agree. Okay, um, we were going to try to get to Stephen, uh, our good friend Stephen. Uh, he writes in these uh, these wonderful emails. We we're going to try to get to this. Uh, this is on uh, our conversation about commentaries versus midrash, and uh, so he had some more questions on that. And I think it's a, a great great question to ask. We'll start with this one next week, um, and then we have a couple others that can be uh, talked about as well. But uh, we certainly needs your comments as well. So 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. You can also shoot us an email, chagger, torahresource.com. I've been having a really interesting conversation with someone just about the validity of Torah, um, which started with the kosher laws, by the way, interestingly enough, uh, on YouTube. And I think I'm going to pull some of that conversation in because there are some really interesting uh, uh, points that are being made uh, by the person that is 
discussing. And I think that they maybe kind of back to the basics for some of us, but at the same time, I think really good um, things to address because I think a lot of people have the same kind of questions. So anyway, we'll try to do that next week as well. But cool. uh, please send us in your uh, your uh, comments, your questions, and all that kind of stuff. And also don't forget to subscribe to this YouTube channel. It really does help us. Okay. Ah, good conversation, Rob. Thank you so much. We yeah. hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. Yeah.